Okay, everyone. So next up, we have a podcast recording. So I will ask everyone to be quiet because if you yell things, it will end up on the podcast and it will go out into the world and everyone will hear you. Uh, so it's my pleasure to introduce you to Jared Taylor, the podcast host, and I'll let you take it from here, Jared. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, so we're really excited today. Uh, we've been doing a lot of virtual care episodes recently and then was really excited for this conference to, to come about. Uh, we're going to be talking about how to scale virtual care in the U.S. And uh, I'm joined uh, today by Dr. Samir Berry, uh, Chief Medical Officer at Oshi Health, uh, who recently spoke today. And uh, I'm going to probably butcher this, but uh, Maureen Krasinski, Leo Council Mayo Clinic. Um, I'll let them give a quick intro before we get started, uh, and then we'll dive into the topic. So, uh, yeah, happy to be on this virtual podcast. This is definitely a first. Um, so my name is Samir, Chief Medical Officer at Oshi Health. I'm also a practicing gastroenterologist um, in New York City. And, you know, really excited to talk to you guys about virtual first because GI is one of those specialties that people usually think of as highly procedural, not really amenable to, to virtual first care. Um, and so hopefully we can talk about some of the challenges and triumphs that we've had at Oshi in building a virtual first company and a specialty that traditionally is thought of as um, a very hands-on specialty. And I'm Maureen Krasinski, a huge honor to be with you. It's kind of funny. Who brings their lawyer? It's like bringing your annoying Aunt Martha. <laughs> um, I am with Mayo Clinic now, but I know Samir because uh, I was with the healthcare practice at Foley and Lardner, and they have a very strong telehealth practice. So at the time that I was there, um, I did a lot of work with virtual um, startup companies, including Oshi, which is one of my favorites. So really happy to be here. If we have time, we'll have to hear what it was like working with uh, Dr. Barry. <laughs> Hold nothing back. He sent me a really big bottle of wine. So <laughs> I love it's a true story. Great guy. <laughs> um, so when we when we think about virtual care, there's there are some challenges to scaling it. Um, we're going to focus on just a couple of them today. Uh, you know, three or more. Um, but uh, we'll start with uh, with you. Um, talk us through some of the, the main challenges that we face in scaling virtual care, and then we'll kind of dive into some other pieces. Do you want me to start? You oh, you can start too. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, wh where do you begin, right? Um, you know, we could, we could prioritize them in many, many different ways, but I think um, as a subspecialty practice, and then obviously as my bias as a physician, right, when you're, when you're building a virtual care company, I'm sure everyone in this room is familiar with the friendly PCMSO structure, and so you have a clinician that essentially owns 100% of the revenue generating part of the business, which is fairly interesting, right? The investors are all investing in the MSO. You have a physician that owns a professional corporation. And then scaling that is incredibly complicated for cultural reasons, hiring, state-by-state um, -state regulation of medical care in areas, especially where there is corporate practice of medicine. Um, so we can start all over the map, but maybe we just start with um, provider recruitment. Um, I think that's one that's you know really near and dear to my heart right now as we're opening up in new states and trying to figure out, you know, do we cross-license our current core team or do we hire new licensed clinicians who live in the areas where we want them to serve? Um, and it's there's, there's a lot of different inputs that go into that. Um, you know, for example, employment laws, right? So it's a lot 
it's a lot more challenging to hire someone here in Massachusetts because of all the employment laws and um, restrictions on independent contractors as it is to maybe hire someone in a different state, cross-license them into Massachusetts. So these are a lot of the kind of decisions that you have to make when you're expanding and thinking purely about provider recruitment. Um, and Marina and I spent many, many uh, late nights on the phone kind of going back and forth around, you know, which strategy could get you, um, you know, to, to accelerate certain commercial opportunities um, while balancing the like regulatory hurdles um, and, you know, kind of local state by state hurdles as well. Yeah, I think the provider recruitment is going to continue to be a very significant challenge in this space. Um, if you haven't had a chance to read, uh, there's an economist from the University of Chicago. His name is John List. He recently published a book called The Voltage Effect. And one of the things that he talks about, and the book's about uh, scaling nationally. And one of the things he talks about is that, you know, when you have your good idea, you need to look at the, um, you know, the inputs to providing your service and think about whether that itself is scalable. So this service, humans are your number one asset, but humans are going to be really hard to find in these roles um, going forward. There, I think you've heard, you know, industry-wide um, providers are moving out of healthcare entirely or they're retiring or the shifting demographic is just the supply is not meeting the demand. So I think we talked a little bit earlier, I heard some other speakers talk about, there is a great advantage for virtual care providers because you create a better um, um, work-life balance and the working conditions are easier to be, um, to be virtual. Uh, but the competition is going to continue and it's going to be fierce. So creating a, a, um, a working environment where you have collaboration and you feel like you're growing professionally, you're going to have to pay attention to all that to get providers um, into your organization. Even speaking tactically about some of these things, right? Like if you think about the various different decisions, do you build a workforce where they're full-time and they're you know, a core part of your team? Um, do you mix W-2s and 1099s? Do you lean fully on 1099s? You know, that decision in and of itself, you know, going back and forth, we initially had started off with 1099s for the obvious reasons, the flexibility, you know, you can really kind of flux up and down with supply and demand constraints. Um, but it's really hard to deliver. And, you know, some of the people in the room may disagree with me, but my opinion is it's very difficult to build a relationship, high touch um, care team if you're leaning on clinicians that, you know, you might be one of five virtual care companies that they work for, right? Um, for, for us at OSHI, not only is the specialty clinically complex, and so it, it kind of lends itself more to a W-2 workforce, but because of the ways that we work with our customers and try to take on risk and avoid unnecessary utilization, you know, if, if I'm a 1099 and I'm on call and somebody calls me in the middle of the night and I need to spend an extra 15 or 20 or 30 minutes to avoid an unnecessary emergency room visit, you know, can that be done by somebody who's not fully plugged into the culture and fully plugged into the practice? I don't know. Maybe, you know, there are protocols, I guess, you could develop to try to guide people's decision making. Um, but it's not, it's not that easy. Another tactical question that we 
you know, we kind of thought, thought about when it came to provider recruitment was um, reciprocity and compacts, right? So um, state licensure is ridiculously complicated. There's vendors that have kind of tried to streamline this. Um, I just got an email this morning that I'm licensed now in Idaho. I get random emails all the time. Congratulations that I'm licensed somewhere. Um, but, you know, you, trying to be thinking tactfully about, you know, what states you operate in, where your providers are based in, because then you can start to take advantage of, you know, the nurse licensure compact, the, you know, uh, advanced practice provider compact, there's SIPACT for psychologists, um, there's a compact for physicians, right? And so you, there's a lot of tactful ways that you, or tactical ways that you can um, take advantage of um, the system, even though it's some usually working against us in virtual care, unfortunately. So when you're scaling, how do you make the decision to go into certain states uh, as it relates to licensing? <laughs> certain states are so annoying. <laughs> there are some. That... Call them out. Call them out right here. I, you know, California is crazy. Uh, they are hyper, hyper regulated. They've always been hyper regulated, but, you know, down to the detail of, you know, if you're getting informed consent for a procedure, the regulations actually will specify what you need to tell the patient. They're just hyper regulated. Um, and then as Samir pointed out, um, if you're not familiar with corporate practice of medicine, um, there are certain states that don't want to see a corporation running a medical practice. So you have to structure yourself legally in a certain specified way in order to operate safely in those states. And that includes New York, California, Colorado, Florida. What's the other one? I defer to legal counsel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there are certain states that you really, unfortunately, need legal help. Um, because the state regulatory landscape is so diverse and you even run across unusual things with, um, you know, if you're doing a DTC arrangement where the patient's going to self-pay, states have very different rules on what do you need to tell the patient, what needs to be in your consent. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we definitely haven't made it easy for telehealth providers with the, the with the 50 state everything's different covid was super helpful the phe like awesome um but with the phe things going away you know we're back to some challenges but it's not even regulatory right when you're thinking about the states to expand to there's you know regulatory is one component that you have to think about but um obviously commercial opportunity is a huge one right um so you know, many of the people in this room, obviously, there's a lot of employers that won't want to work with a solution that they can only offer to a few of their employees, right? So do you take advantage of commercial opportunity and scale to all 50 states? Uh, well, it's really hard to staff a team of clinicians to have, to, you know, to see maybe 20 patients in Idaho, for example. So how do you make those trade-offs and those balances? Um, and so health plans can be somewhat easier to work with in that regard, because it's a little easier for them to kind of turn things on and off from a state-by-state -state basis, uh, whereas with employers, they really want a solution that can fit their entire population. Um, so commercial opportunity is one, regulatory is another one. Um, we have talked a lot about like licensure, but what about physician and APP oversight? So when I say APP, I'm referring to nurse practitioners and physician assistants, 
different states actually have different rules as to whether they need a collaborating or supervising physician. Uh, the number of APPs a collaborating physician can oversee, um, how close the collaborating physician actually needs to be in proximity to the APP. So, you know, when you're building a virtual workforce, you're thinking you can have your entire team decentralized. There are certain states, I think Louisiana is one, where, you know, the collaborating physician and the nurse practitioner or PA have to be like within 75 miles of each other. Well, if, you know, I live in New York City, if I'm going to be one of our collaborating providers, how do we expand into Louisiana, right? Do we need to hire a medical director in Louisiana? So um, balancing, you know, commercial opportunity with regulatory and, you know, the state medical boards um, is why Marina and I got very close over the, <laughs> a year-long period of, you know, pulling our hair out and trying to figure this thing out. Yeah, I'm sure there's more reasons to want to talk and hang out <laughs> with you than that, but, but uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, you were going to say? Oh, I was going to say that uh, one of the projects that, that we worked on was, you know, there's 50 state rules on that collaborative relationship and what needs to be in a written agreement between the, the APP and the supervising physician. So one of the things that we did at OSHI was try to create one agreement, covers all states, you know, meets all the requirements of everybody, and we can just use one and not have 20 different versions. But that those are the challenges when you're trying to scope. Thank you. Um, I want to shift focus from, we were very licensing heavy uh, in the first part of this conversation, uh, to the challenges uh, with scaling and as it relates to billing. Uh, so, you know, over the years, uh, so many virtual care companies were only dealing with cash pay. Um, you're hearing more and more uh, billing become part of the scaling question. So um, I want to start off, we'll start with you, Dr. Berry, uh, some of the challenges related to billing and then maybe even kind of dive into how you see that maybe um, changing over, over the years. Yeah, well, people who are um, more, more of an expert in billing have spoken in this conference prior to me, but I'll give you know, my, my two cents, right? So when you're building these solutions, for most of us, there's a chunk of the type of care that we deliver that is billable through our existing kind of fee-for-service architecture. But I would argue for also most of us, there's a component of that care that's not billable, at least the way it is today. And so when you start to think about scaling, you know, the questions you have to ask yourself are, do you just launch and eat the cost, right? You just launch on the fee-for-service part, build what you can through claims and eat the cost on the rest of it to try to scale and, and gain volume and, you know, kind of gain a reputation, get patients flowing through your system. Um, do you, you know, work for months and months and months with an insurance company and health plan redesigned to actually try to get that component of your care that's not billable through fee-for-service to get billed? you know, somehow in some way. Um, and one of the interesting things that I've heard about this conference, which has been our experience, and I'm sure many of the experience of the people in this room is, you know, you start working with an insurance company, everybody's super excited to pay on value, pay on outcomes, pay on utilization. And then six months later, you just walk all the way right back to like a PMPM fee for service system, right? And so the intentions are good, but scaling it that way, you have to kind of reinvent the wheel with every state, with every payer. Um, one of the things that you know you can do is working with employers or capitated systems. You can bill with invoicing, um, and so that can kind of help to solve that problem where you're not stuck with um, the fee for service kind of architecture system. Um, the efficiencies you gain by kind of leaning on this legacy, you know, billing architecture is um, sometimes offset by things like patient cost share, patients that have high deductible health plans. 
Um, you know, Sam mentioned earlier on his panel yesterday that that's something that we think about a lot, right? Like, how do you get a, a patient to start to think about the decision making in that way if you're going to have that type of cost share? Um, so that's some of the things that we've we've thought about at Oshi when we're trying to think about how to expand with regards to billing. Do you think that? Yeah, I, I guess I think of um, the billing and payer relationships as the the director consumer, the patient pay is the simplest in terms of you know we send you a bill or you put us on your credit card. That's simple, but not very scalable. Um, then you've got the uh, direct to employer, which I think is like the best type of relationship. It's more flexible. Um, you can have better negotiating. Then you move to big insurers. Um, it gets more complex. You have less ability to negotiate. They'll give you a contract and you basically can't change any of the terms. Um, then you've got Medicare and Medicaid, which is, you know, a real billing and reimbursement nightmare if, if anyone's in there yet. One thing I would say about insurance companies when you get to these value-based arrangements is that you're coming to the negotiating table at a significant disadvantage, and so you really need to do your homework on your own cost structure. It, I think like 80 to 85% of actuaries work for insurance companies, and insurance companies have massive amounts of claims data. So they're gonna be able to do projections on your service, and they're going to be able to decide you know, their negotiating numbers and you're a little bit at a disadvantage. So I think you have to be careful when you're when you're setting up some of those unique payment arrangements. Um, just be careful that you understand the party that you're negotiating with. What would you like, as a virtual care company, what would you like to see, in, I guess, improve in terms of like, uh, not to not to put you on the spot or anything, uh, the the payer like uh, virtual care relationship. Hopefully they hear it. You know, uh, yeah. since we're recording. How long do we have? Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I touched on this earlier um, during the infrastructure panel. There's that notion that we used to, you know, that have, you know, we all have founders have kind of debunked of like, if you build it, they will come. Um, I think that should really shift into, if you build it, the insurance companies want going to want the data around it, right? And so with virtual care, we have data on engagement, we have data on retention, we have data on outcomes, we have data on utilization because we're purpose building this technology to collect those metrics. And so the insurance companies are curious about what, what those data points are and they wanna build contracts around those data points. Um, I work one day a week at a private you know, brick and mortar, run of the mill, private practice in New York. None of their contracts with any of their, their payers ask any of those questions because they don't collect that data, right? And so what I would like to see is, I think, more um, alignment towards working towards a similar goal, a shared goal um, between payers, employers, and the virtual first companies that we're all trying to get towards the same end goal of moving towards more, you know, pay for outcomes, pay for value. Um, but I think there has to be, and this may be somewhat naive, but there has to be somewhat some level of trust that we're trying to build you know, the bicycle as we're riding it. And we're trying to kind of get all, all we're all on the same, we're all on the same page. Um, but sometimes it's tough because they have internal stakeholders that they have to sell things to. There's risks that they have in, you know, overpaying for things or getting people, you know, over-enrolled into certain programs. Um, 
So that's, I guess, just a level of trust, more collaboration. We've been fortunate, really, that at, at Oshi, that the payers we work with are very collaborative. But I've heard from some of my colleagues that you know it's really just kind of um, more combative in some situations. Yeah, I, I think what I would underscore um, what Samira was saying about having outcomes data. Um, I think one of the reasons very early on I thought Oshi would be really successful is that Samir was highly focused on quality and very focused on having the data that demonstrates it. Um, when I think we heard from the last panel with the fundraising that um, fundraisers aren't looking for you to be able to you know, start up your shops in all 50 states tomorrow because you'll end up in a Home Depot scenario where you've done so, too much expansion and you're not providing good service. They'd rather see you um, go deep. I think they were using the terms, but they'd rather be able to see you have outcomes data and show that you can deploy your service within a geography and then get you know, demonstrate a change in the, the data quality. That's, I think, critical. Plus, I think um, across the space, if your story is just that we're going to provide this service via video, um, that's not that interesting of a story. You know, what you really need is to be able to say, we're providing this service with this format, and as a result, we get this, 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 and this. You need that. You need to be able to do that. One of the annoying parts of, uh, so I, I like how you said, you know, you have to prove out what you can do in like a couple states first and then expand. The only uh, annoying part about that versus going all in, which has its own complexities, is it takes so long to get set up. So you could have the, the best data and get ready to move forward in all 50 states. And because you didn't start, you know, a couple months in advance, you're going to have those uh, those challenges. So there is like a trade-off, right? You either spend a lot to, to scale it, and then it maybe it doesn't go the way that you want uh, initially um, or as quickly as you'd like, or you have to prove it out and then you have to wait a couple months, um, you know, lose some of that momentum, but not much, and then, you know, keep moving forward. Well, uh, you know, the one thing I'll say on that is moving into more states is not a linear relationship with regards to complexity, right? It's not twice as complicated to be in twice as many states it's exponentially more complicated right because every state if you know the way healthcare is practiced in one state you know the way healthcare is practiced in one state you, you know what's going to cause provider abrasion with the brick and mortar docs how that unique blues plan has you know operates what happened last year with their brick and mortar docs you know every single state is just so uniquely complicated from a commercial perspective alone not only thinking about the types of things that like Jamie and I were talking about in the hallway, you know, just the provider oversight and complexity, right? How do you start to develop, you know, care team pods? What, you know, what um, delineates those pods, right? So do you have a care team that's, you know, your Eastern, you know, time zone or Pacific time zone? Do you do it like at OSHI? Do you have like an inflammatory bowel disease care team and an irritable bowel syndrome care team, right? So going into more and more states, while it's commercially potentially more valuable, is just exponentially more complicated. Uh, so when we look at, um, we, you talked a little bit about the physician recruitment piece earlier on. One thing that we didn't touch on that I want to make sure we dive into are, is the complexities around the shortage uh, of healthcare professionals that we have you know, here and beyond. Not, it's not just the U.S. that we have this issue. Um, can you talk about how that affects, um, let's talk about the, the pods that you're building out, but also uh, I want to circle back to the recruiting piece 
because we kind of moved on to the billing um, shortly after. Um, I think it has to come from the top. And I remember really early days at Oshi talking to Sam about, you know, we want this to be a choice place of work for clinicians. And we want to, you know, invest early on in areas where a startup probably wouldn't traditionally invest to make it a place where clinicians actually want to work. Um, and that really has to come from the top. And whether it's, you know, flying our teams out to all the conferences, right? We were the only company who had their dietitians and psychologists at our national GI meeting, right? Where it's normally all doctors. And so, you know, it's little things like that that I think you can do to make it a place where people want to work. Um, but speaking more from like a system level in terms of what we do about the provider shortage, I think it's tech-enabled care is one of the things, right? Trying to help me focus on the things that only I can do as a board-certified gastroenterologist um, is, of course, you know, an obvious one. Utilizing other licensed clinicians to the top of their license, right? None of these things are new ideas. Everybody's heard these over and over and over, but um, there are cultural um, blockers. There are strong financial incentives, especially in GI and other procedural specialties um, where stakeholders are. There's a lot of money at stake to kind of make these things very difficult to implement. Um, and then regulatory and legal issues, obviously, as well, that I think we're starting to break down and COVID obviously accelerated a lot of this. What about in terms of uh, also not just the shortage that we have, we also have an aging uh, population. So we're going to be losing a lot of these clinicians that are currently in play right now. Um, you know, what are you seeing in terms of ways that we can mitigate that uh, as well? Great retirement job. Right. right. <laughs> Go virtual in retirement. Right. I mean, I obviously know GI better than uh, other specialties, but the average age of a gastroenterologist is 66, right? And so who's going to do our screening colonoscopies? Who's going to, you know, treat the rising incidence of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis? Um, so it's, it's a big problem. Again, I think that tech-enabled care of scaling access to other types of licensed clinicians is key. You know, at, at OSHI, we have board-certified gastroenterologists. They're there to truly handle only the care that needs their insight and oversight. And they love that, right? Because a board certified gastroenterologist, I don't want to tell someone not to lay down after eating 20 times a day because that's going to make their reflux worse, right? Um, a health coach who's really passionate and trained in behavior change and understanding the nuances of why is this individual not complying with these lifestyle recommendations, that's a, that's a much better use of that, of that um, clinician's time I'm probably going to get a much better outcome. So it's just, you know, allocating the resources and expertise um, in, a, in a way that we traditionally have not thought of um, because training has been siloed, right? Like we get trained in the ways that we start to practice. Um, so that's, I think, some of the ways that we'll start to see things change. I want to dive in for, for some of the new uh, organizations that are trying to launch in virtual care. I want to talk a little bit more about what you suggest they should be doing as they kick off their, their journey in the virtual care space. Because um, it, it can be different, obviously, from the established companies that have been around now for a few years. Uh, why don't we start? Great to hear your opinion, and then we'll kick it back over to Dr. Berry. Um, I guess one of the things that I haven't heard this morning did I, can you still hear me? Sorry. Um, I would spend some time touching on your system in the sense that, like, you run into these kind of silly but practical problems of you can't send a bill until your provider closes out their note in the medical record. So 
you, you need to build your systems so that you don't have these little annoying things that come up and develop a documentation process that um, helps you standardize and measure, but also honors the art of medicine, like we talked about a little earlier, but make the provider's life as easy as possible in doing the stuff that they hate doing, you know, all the documentation. That also, you know, if you focus on your systems, I also think it's important to focus early on the, the later value of your data. So a lot of healthcare companies or telehealth companies think about their data in terms of, oh, yeah, we got to maintain these medical records and have a medical record system so that we can do our documentation. Later on down the field, um, especially if you develop a diverse patient population, that data is going to become very valuable um, to R&D, to, you know, to developing new AI, that data will be very valuable. Um, but you have to pay attention to it early. How are you organizing it? You know, what information are you collecting? What do you kind of see in your space? that may, you know, be of interest later on down the line, but don't forget that that data isn't just there to document what you did. That data can springboard you in the future um, in important ways. I was actually going to lead into this. I'm glad you, you dove into it. Um, so along with what you said, what, what I, uh, Dr. Berry, what other quality metrics should new, new practices in particular be really focusing in on? Um, well, first, hire excellent legal counsel. Um, that would be a good a good metric. Um, but you know, I'm not going to. People in this room are much smarter than I am when it comes to starting new companies and what they should be doing. So I won't pretend to be, you know, know things that other people here don't already know. But I would say be really clear about um, the value prop and understand the stakeholders involved. Um, healthcare is obviously incredibly complicated. It's you know, someone referred to it as like the triple black diamond of entrepreneurship. And so I think, especially in GI, for example, um, you know, how do GI doctors feel about OSHI? How do primary care doctors feel about OSHI? It's not enough that it's just good for the patient. That's obviously the North Star, but just thinking about all the different stakeholders involved and um, what the value prop is to other participants in the ecosystem, um, that's something that I always tell people um, when they ask me about OSHI. I think it's important to note to like figure out what you want to really go all in on and focus in on that. And there's so many great companies in the space that can help, especially these new companies scale, right? We, we had a great panel on the infrastructure companies up here yesterday uh, that you can kind of plug and play into and be able to build out your clinical workforce. And sure, you'll have to you hire on like a medical director that can help facilitate, you know, who, who you're bringing on board, but that being able to kind of uh, have an out-of-the-box solution is super helpful in kicking off your practice, especially when they're trying to compete with, you know, companies like Oshi and, and some of the other virtual care players that have several years uh, on these new companies. Um, when it comes to those organizations, the new organizations in particular, what is what would your suggestions be around, we talked about cross-licensure, um, you know, where should they be focusing in on as soon as they start as it relates to licensing? I think it depends on your care model and what outcome you're trying to achieve. Um, so if your care model is, is very agreeable to, you know, more transactional 
um, type of care if people just want convenience, right? So if it, from the patient's perspective, if it's more important for me as a patient to see a provider the moment I want to see a provider, and that's more important to me than seeing the provider who I saw at the last visit, to me, then you can start to lean on more of these kind of infrastructural support companies where they can provide speed, convenience, quick access. Um, in a practice like Oshi's where, you know, I can't, I don't want to retell my entire stigmatized story about what happened to a new provider. I'd rather wait. So if that means I have to wait until tomorrow or next week, I'm okay with waiting. And so it depends on, you know, what type of care model you're building. Is it a care model where patients are going to prefer convenience, even if that means they may have to give up on relationship, or are they going to prefer having a relationship with the same clinical team and um, they're willing to give up a little bit on convenience. Um, that's how you kind of make that decision of build versus partner. Anything to add, Maureen? I, I think, um, well, Samir referred to earlier, um, working at the top of your license. I think given what we're going to see with the availability, the supply of healthcare providers, creating a workflow where you are maximizing um, those, those physician extenders makes so much sense. Um, it's going to make it easier for you to recruit. Uh, you know, you'll have a better working environment for clinicians who really want to focus on, you know, their complex critical patients. But also, I, I think, and, and Smeared and I talked about this a little bit, you may want to start thinking about, you know, training your own workforce or, or how you're going to train people to be in your specialty. So Smear doesn't necessarily need to go out and hire only board-certified gastroenterologists. You know, he could hire an internal medicine person, you know, get them in a relationship with the specialists and, you know, kind of in-house train them um, to be a GI doc. <laughs> they might not necessarily be board-certified, but you know, that that um, that channel to bring providers into your organization, you're going to have to be pretty creative about it. And there's no reason you couldn't operate in some states with just NPPs. Well, that's one of the great opportunities for virtual care, simple things like triage, right? I mean, I used to practice at the University of Michigan, tertiary quaternary care center. Almost all my patients came having seen two or three GI doctors before they came to see me. Every now and then I'd get a patient Bread and butter, super simple, just had questions about what type of colorectal cancer screening they need. And right, so even at a place like University of Michigan, there's very little ability to triage who actually needs to see what type of provider. And I think, you know, purpose building technology the right way, you can actually reduce a lot of waste by saying, okay, this is a mild to moderate IBD patient. Let me triage them to a nurse practitioner versus this is a moderate to severe Crohn's patient. Let me triage them to a gastroenterologist, right? And the brick and mortar system, just because we don't have the touch points with the patient, we're not engaged with the patient upstream of their visit. It's really hard to do that. And this is a challenge for established practice. But when we, when we look at the telehealth regulations, right, how would you suggest that we'll, we'll do both, like established practices and also new practices, how should they be paying attention to these regulations? What are some of the best practices? Ooh, I'll defer to counsel again on that. You're supposed to say, on advice of counsel, I refuse to answer. Right, <laughs> right. right. Uh, yeah. Um, 
thankfully, I think uh, there are now so many entities, big law firms and, you know, the ATA that are in this space and kind of helping you track. I mean, a lot of what we did in the year that we were working together, made a lot of maps, you know, making certain states red because, you know, you couldn't do this there or so I, I, I think there are a lot of really good resources out there, and I would, you know, I'm sure a lot of lawyers will kill me for saying this, but don't don't go buy a 50 state law survey um, from someone because the data is probably out there um, in you know free. Uh, but getting hooked up with your peers also, you know, if you network at things like this, you hear a lot about like, oh, this is coming down the pike, or you know. So-and-so is doing this. The other thing I would recommend is that um, a lot of states are very interested in providing good health care to, you know, the people in their state. And I did have some success in some states of saying, hey, this rule says this and this rule says this and this just makes it impossible. How about you give us a waiver? <laughs> and, you know, we're going to, why don't you just let us pilot this? Wave it, wave it for you know us for six months, and we'll demonstrate that nothing bad happens. Um, you can, you don't need to assume that these that you're stuck with these regulations and you can't operate there. You may be able to if you if you have if you're bringing something really good to the table. Thank you. Uh, I want to make sure we have a couple minutes left uh, for any to take any questions from the audience. What I do ask is just wait till you have a microphone to ask, since we are recording this and. You will be on the recording. Any questions? Hi. Um, <clears throat> I also have helped at Included Health in previous years build out um, the licensure in 50 states. And so I know all those headaches, a lot of calls with Foley. Um, how do you think about, and it may not be as accurate for OSHI um, or as relevant, but how do you think about the trade-offs between utilizing that multidisciplinary team, top of license, um, with also the pressure, at least we get from employers and consultants on um, first call resolution and the fewest handoffs possible. So, you know, the model you were saying, Samir, is like you do a triage, maybe you send it to the NP versus the board certified GI doc, um, but there's a couple handoffs in here in that, right? So we're always kind of balancing that model of care. So how do you ensure you're not handing off to like a lot of people yet being able to have your NPs doing as much as they can and your nurses doing as much as they can. Uh, I can take a stab at it from a clinical model standpoint. I think it's about having a quarterback um, because there's going to be handoffs, right? You can't have a one pill fits, you know, one size fits all approach. Um, but we, you know, we kind of solve for that problem by having a quarterback and that is the nurse practitioner, right? And so the first visit is with the nurse practitioner and they're working really closely with the rest of the clinical team. Um, I mentioned also that relationship-based care. So, you know, the, the nurse practitioner you have is always going to be that NP that goes also with the dietitian, the psychologist, the gastroenterologist you see, the health coach you see. Um, and so I think it's just about a, educating the patient at the first visit around, hey, you might see a lot of different types of clinicians. You might have a lot of visits. The next three to six months is going to be really intense, but we're going to work with you. And I think it's just about setting expectations, having a quarterback, um, and then you know trying to keep everybody as coordinated as they can under this virtual roof, which we could talk about. 
Um, but that's the way that's the way we see it. You know, we don't medicine relies a lot on notes, right? And notes are just notes. They're not people talking to each other. Um, and so we really encouraged, you know, one of the reasons we try to bring more and more clinicians on full time is jump on Zoom, jump on a Slack huddle. Just, you know, don't just rely on this old way of writing these purposefully vague notes so that, you know, if there's any malpractice issue, it kind of includes every little tiny random thing under the sun. Um, we kind of try to build our notes in a way that makes it easy to communicate, but then also encourage people to actually jump on a call or, or you know, Zoom to talk about it. Yeah, I, I would agree with Samir uh, about managing the expectations too. It really isn't a bad thing to have multiple people involved in your care because you get new ideas, new views, new background experiences. You know, perhaps the clinician you're working with has never seen the constellation that you present with, but you know, someone else does. So I think it does make sense at the start of the relationship to introduce your practice and say, we are a very collaborative and consultative practice. We like to talk with each other so that we can bring you the best care. That means, you know, during your relationship with us, you know, you may see different people. And we hope that you understand that that means that you're going to get, you know, better care from us. You know, there are going to be multiple individuals who will bring their contributions to your care and it will be, it will be better. This is a uh, real detailed question, but for a lot of these codes that are time-based and you're looking at sucking up lots of different providers' time, how do you manage that? And is it an issue that varies state by state? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I don't see the, the time-based codes varying state by state. All the, all the codes come out of, you know, the, the Medicare program and the commercial insurers use all the same codes. So generally, the coding should be the same wherever you are. But you do have to be very diligent about what you're reporting. You know, don't, don't upcode that's so easy on time. You know, it, that's so easy to audit and catch um, is upcoding for, for time. Um, and especially in the digital space, like, you can easily go back and see um, your visit. You know, you were on video for seven minutes, not 35 minutes. So, and then I think the other thing that's important state by state wise, though, is um, if you're using um, um, an extender, an advanced practitioner, are they properly supervised during that visit so that you can, you know, build that under potentially a doc code as opposed to that time tracking though is important. I mean, for, for us, it's, we don't, we try not to bill all the different various licensed clinician types under that existing fee for service architecture. You can right? there are medical nutrition therapy codes. There are psychology codes. There are telephone codes. There are video visit codes. There are HixPix codes. So there's all these various codes that you can use to bill for services some on time, some on complexity, some neither. Um, but I think we try to capture more and more of the care that we deliver and get it paid for the outcome that we achieve. Um, but for the reasons that I said before, it's not always that simple. The, the other thing I think that's really helpful is that when you know what is it needs to be documented to support a code, you know, like build it into your workflow so that like someone just has a checkbox to have have documented that. 
sometimes, and it, it's somewhat easier to do when you're in a specialty and at least your codes are within like a certain universe, but having the documentation to support the codes is going to be very helpful for when you will get payment denied and you will have to go through whatever appeals process your payer has to, to argue about getting paid. See, but I would caution that line of thinking. It's one of the things that I do a lot like this week is top of mind for me is building documentation templates, right? And, and thinking forward to building the scaffolding for a data lake in GI, right? And if you automate some of these templates that you need to bill a certain amount, you know, when you're looking at these, these documents, you know, a year or two years from now and you're building a data lake, did that clinician actually do that? And is that what actually happened? Or did they just use the template that you use to code a certain visit, right? Um, the same goes, the same other reverse is true, right? If someone didn't document something, does that mean that doesn't exist? Or does that mean they just forgot to document it, right? And so as you're starting to think about like provider behavior, provider psychology, you have to be really careful about, you know, including elements in your documentation that are going to be there to satisfy a regulatory compliant issue or a uh, coding payment issue, um, because that might help you in the short term commercially. But, you know, I'm a researcher. That's where I came from was academia and research. So it bothers me and it keeps me up at night when I'm thinking, you know, okay, well, when I'm looking at 10,000 patients and I'm trying to use predictive analytics to say, hey, is this person actually at risk for the ER? Did that, did somebody just incentivize our providers to code or document something because that's what we needed to tell the payer, right? So just being mindful of how that how that might play out years down the line. Right. Uh, that's all we have time for today. So thank you so much. If anyone has any questions, I'm sure everyone will answer. Uh, you know, after. Thank you. Thank you.